Welcome, gather round the fireside and listen to a tale of Yon McCool, Cullen, Deirdre of the Sorrows, Grawn, New Whale. From giants right down to fairies, of both the trooping and solitary, and those who are sometimes scary. Anything goes by the fireside. Yeah. Fireside, the Puka Fireside, the Merrow Fireside. Kings and queens fighting heroes, don't you run from the fun, there's no need to hide. Sit by the fireside. Mm. Fireside. Hello, and welcome to Fireside, the Irish storytelling podcast. Each episode of Fireside, we take a story from folklore and mythology, retell it, have a chat about the story itself and about the craft, culture and history of storytelling. My name is Kevin C. Olahan, and I am your host and your Fireside Bard. It's episode two. It is the second episode of Fireside, and I am absolutely delighted that we've even made it this far. Even the first one's always going to be the hardest. And so it's brilliant to have this podcast up on its feet again. Last week, we had The Legend of Knockmany, which is the story of the Giant's Causeway and of Fionn McCool. If you haven't listened to that episode, I recommend you go back and start, because we're hopefully going to build a nice groove, a nice flow. This should be a podcast that can be listened to out of order, but I also hope that there should be a nice build throughout it as well. But now we're going to get right back into it. We're going to dive straight headfirst into Irish mythology. Let's talk about the Tua de Danon. The coming of the Tua de Danon. The Tua de Danon, the old gods of Ireland, came to this land thousands of years ago. They ruled Ireland for less than 200 years, but their power and influence never truly left. This tribe came from the north where they had four cities, Phalius, Gordius, Phineas, and Murius. It is thought that these four cities were located in what is now called Norway. Noteworthy, considering that thousands of years later, the Vikings would found most of the Irish cities we still live in today. The Tua de Danon landed off the coast of Connacht. They emerged from a mist on flying ships which they landed on the coastline. The men of Dia wanted to ensure that they settled in this new land, so they burned their flying ships. Clearly, they didn't write down how to make more, hence why we have none today. Planes don't count. I want flying pirate ships. To list all of the members of the Tua de Danon would be absurd, and actually impossible, as we only have stories of so few of them left. But here are the big players for this story, anyway. Of course, first and foremost, we have Danu, the mother of the gods, often called Dana, not to be confused with her pop star turned politician contemporary namesake. But it is thought that Danu did not come to Ireland with her children. Rather, it was her son Nuda who led them as their first king in this new land. Nuda's brothers were Ogma, who taught them writing, and Dian Caked, the healer. There was also Neat, the god of battle, Credinus, the craftsman, and Govnu, the smith. And while each of these men had their special talents, 
Bridget is said to have had all of these talents in one. She was worshipped by poets. She could heal and smith. Half of her face was beautiful. The other half was terrifying. Her name meant the fiery arrow. Then you had the three sisters of the Morrigan, Bav, Maka, and Neiman. They were known collectively as the Morrigan. They're probably the longest-lasting and most well-known of the old Irish gods, in no small part to the fact that they represent fate and death. Bav is who would appear the most, as she was the battle goddess who appeared in crow form. The Morrigan were also sisters to another set of sisters who were also three in one, Era, Bola and Banba, each of whom Ireland would be named after. And if you thought Ireland was only named after Era, think again. Fola and Banba are also the name of Ireland, in the same way that England is also known as Albion. Although these days, Fola would be an uncommon name to name a child, and Banba is the name of that toy master on Mary Street in Dublin. Okay, is all of that clear? No? Yeah, it isn't. The Tua de Danan treasured three things above all. The plough, the sun and the hazel tree. It is these things that they wish to dedicate this new land to, on Col, on Kecht, August on Green. Not only did they plant hazel trees throughout this island, they also had nine hazel nuts of knowledge and wisdom that were growing beneath the sea. They would one day be eaten by a salmon, but that's for later. The Tua de Danan brought four treasures from their old home, one from each of the four cities, from Gorius, a spear, that no battle would be lost or its wielder defeated. From Phineas, a sword, that no one could escape from once it had been unsheathed. As king, Nuda took possession of this treasure. A cauldron was brought from Murius, that if someone ate food from, they would never leave unsatisfied. And finally, from Phalius, on Leah Fall, the stone of destiny which would proclaim the king whenever he stood upon it. It was placed on the hill of Tara, which would become the seat of the high kings of Ireland for centuries to come. But, of course, before the Tua de Danan could take their place on the hill of Tara, they would have to overthrow the previous rulers. At the time of the landing of the Tua de Danan, Ireland was occupied by a tribe called the Fear Bullocks, it was the two messengers of the Fear Bullocks who first saw the landing of the Tua de Danon in Connacht on May Day. The messengers made the arduous journey back to Tara to inform Yuckad, king of the Fear Bullocks, of the invaders. The messengers couldn't get their story straight. One claiming that the Tua de Danon arrived in flying ships, the other that they merely sailed. They couldn't agree whether these new settlers were mortal foreigners or otherworldly gods. This debate meant nothing to Yuckad for he had already dreamed of the arrival of the Tua de Danon and was well aware of their threat. The next day, Yuckad met with his druids and counsellors to chat about what should be done, and they were all in agreement to send their greatest warrior, Sreng, as a representative of their people to negotiate with the invaders. Sreng was armed with the greatest weaponry of the Fearbullocks, as he approached Machrain, the landing point of the Tua de Danon, the gods saw him approach, and so sent their own representative, Brez, to meet him. Brez, too, was armed with the greatest weaponry of his people. Each of these two warriors were kitted out in the hopes of letting the other think that every other warrior was as formidable as they were. 
Unfortunately for the fair bullocks, Sreng was not a typical representative of his people, whereas Brez was. What neither party anticipated is how much each party would like the other. I like your shield, Brez said to Sreng. That is some spear, replied Sreng to Brez. Sreng was fit, nimble and agile. He was impossible to hit and his strikes were deadly. Brez was a very different fighter. He was formidable and powerful. He could be cut to pieces and still keep on coming. You'd collapse from exhaustion before he delivered the final blow. Despite being such different fighters, neither was naive. It is a common trait of mighty warriors that they recognize a good fighter. What's supposed to be the end goal here, said Brez. I'm supposed to come here and find out what your intentions are with this land, replied Sereng. My people have been drawn here, to this island. There's something about it. It's tiny yet fertile, and in an incredible location. I feel like no one would be able to or be bothered with attacking this island, allowing it to spread and infiltrate throughout the world. Yeah, I think we were thinking along the same lines. Look, said Brez, my people don't want a war. We want to make this land our home and to create the greatest land possible, and we can hopefully do that together. We ask that your people remain in the east and we will remain in the west. Seems like a fair plan to me, said Sreng. Can't speak for Yukid, but I'll relay the message. The two made a pact that day that regardless of what happened between the two tribes, Sreng and Brez would be pals. Sreng returned to Tara. Well, boy, said Yukid. What news from the west? He's a really sound lad, to be honest, King, said Sreng. They're happy to leave us alone if we just stay in the east. Should we don't even use the west? Bollocks to that, replied Yuchid. If we give up half of this land, what's to stop them ever invading the rest? This is our country now. We must defend it. It'll have to be war, so. And so, war were declared. Both sides began to plan their defences. The two of Dedanen moved further west than Connacht to a better place to build a strong defence. They settled on the plain of Machnia because there was the mountain of Balgata right behind them. Here they built walls and ditches. But while the rest of the men of Dia were building these defences, the three sisters of the Morrigan had their own plan. Without telling the others, the Morrigan went to Tara, where the Fairbulgs were making their plans, and made it rain fire and blood all over them. The fair bullocks were blinded, and it took their three head druids, Cezarn, Nyatok, and Ignyatok, three full days to break the enchantment. It was a scumbag tactic on the part of the Morrigan. There will be a lot of that. Despite this setback, the fair bullocks gathered together eleven battalions and marched on Machnia, where the Tour de Danon had set up their war camp. Nuda was angry and embarrassed by the Morrigan's actions. So he sent his best poets, for some reason, to negotiate with Yochid one final time by making the exact same offer to be content with ruling half the country. Yochid asked the poets to ask his people instead of him. At the Yochid's delight, all of the fear bullocks agreed with their king and rejected the proposal. So instead, the messengers asked the fear bullocks when they thought the fighting should begin. Yochid answered, In fairness... You've been here planning your encampment and we've just arrived. 
So I think it's only fair that you give us time to sharpen our spears and our swords, shine our armor and shields, and just get ourselves in order in general. And I think you guys should do the same. Okay. How long do you think that will take? Let's say a quarter of a year. And so they waited a quarter of a year to start fighting. Until at last, on a midsummer day, the Tua de Danan and the Fear Bullocks started beating the ever-loving shit out of each other. On the first day, three times nine soldiers of the Tua de Danan faced off against three times nine soldiers of the Fear Bullocks, and every single one of the Fear Bullocks was defeated. Yuck had sent word to Nuda asking how often he thought they should fight. Nuda replied that they should fight every day, but always use the same number of warriors as each other. Yukud begrudgingly accepted this offer, having no choice, even though he knew he was then at a disadvantage because they were outnumbered. They battled for the following four days. To their credit, the Fear Bullocks fought incredibly well, as there were heavy casualties on both sides, and there was no clear winner for many of those four days. And those that were alive at night time were healed in baths of every healing herb so that they were refreshed for the next day's fight. But on the fourth day, the tide finally turned, and the Tua de Danan began to drive the Fear Bullocks back eastward. Yukud himself was on the front line constantly, but on that fourth day, he developed a great thirst. He took 150 of his best men to a strand called Tra Yothela, but they were followed by 150 of the best warriors of the Tua de Danan. And there, at the strand of Tra Yothela, Yukud finally fell. They buried him there. By this point, of the 11 battalions that had left Tara earlier that year, only 300 soldiers remained, led by the mightiest of them, Srang. On Brez's persuasion, Nuda offered Srang peace and his choice of any of the five provinces of Ireland. Srang chose the scene of their battle, Connacht, and it was there the Fear Bullocks settled permanently. One such descendant of the Fear Bullocks was Ferdia, the best friend turned foe of the bowed pup Cúchulain. As for the Tua de Danann, they settled in Tara, the former seat of the Fear Bullocks, which would remain the seat of royalty in Ireland for generations, and to this day is why we know the county as Royal Meath. It is here that they placed the Lea Fall, which would roar whenever a future king would step on it. And that's the story of the first battle in Ireland by the men of Dia, the Battle of Maktara. However, although the two of Dedanon were victorious in battle, there were casualties. More significant than any individual death was that Nuda, the king of the Tua de Danon, had had his arm cut off in battle by Srang, the great hero of the Fear Bullocks. It may be considered fortunate that Nuda was only dismembered and not killed, but it was in the laws of the Tua de Danon that no man who was not perfect could be king, and so Nuda was removed from power. And it was the warrior Brez who had gone to meet Srang who was chosen as the next king of the Men of Dia. Less for his fighting skills and more for his beauty. For the greatest joy of the Tua de Danon was beauty. They were all rides, but Brez was the biggest ride of them all. It was a saying that if any man, woman, horse or anything was fine, it was as beautiful as Brez. This is a tradition that they have passed down to us today. 
The Irish are a pasty, ugly people with the greatest love and appreciation of anything beautiful. Even though he was a ride, the reign of Brez would be plagued with misfortune because of the oncoming threat of a new enemy, the Fomor. To be continued. Well, and so there is the first part of Irish mythology, the coming of the Tua de Danum. So, there's, as I touched on briefly in the first episode, there are four cycles, as they're called, of uh, that make up all of Irish mythology, or certainly what we have left of it. The, mytholog- the mythological cycle, the Ulster cycle, the Fenian cycle, and the historical cycle. So this is obviously the start of the mythological cycle. It's the earliest chronologically, and it's the one that survived the very least in the conversion to Christianity and what we still have today. So the big thing when it comes to the two of the Danann is, were they gods or are they heroes? And the answer to me seems pretty obvious because the Christians, of course, demoted them. I mean, like we do have the Christian, the early Christian scribes to thank because of the fact that we have written evidence of, of such old stories anyway. But obviously there was casualties to the conversion because <clears throat> a monotheistic religion as Christianity is couldn't really embrace a polytheistic multiple god scheme as the Tua de Danum seemed to be. So they got demoted. They did say that they were magical. They said that they were these immortal beings uh, with magical powers who came from abroad, but that they were not gods. But there is some surviving texts uh, from medieval times that does suggest otherwise. And as far as I'm concerned, like from here on out, I'm going to continue forward as if they are gods. So the interesting thing straight off the bat is that it's weird that the very start of Irish mythology seems to be like jumping in halfway through a story because the two of the Danon were the fifth they were the fifth people to come and settle in Ireland. But for everything that follows in terms of folklore and mythology, this is really the starting off point because they reigned for a certain period and then when the two of the Danon faded from power and faded from memory, uh, it said that they were demoted and that they got smaller and smaller until they turned into the fairies of later folklore. And it is thought that that's why Irish fairies are so nasty because they are these former gods who are angry at the human race for stopping worshipping them, which is really cool. Of course, uh, those who listen last week know that the reverse happened to the pagan Celtic heroes. So Fionn and Cúchulainn and all, they're said to have grown and grown until they became giants uh, with their reputation, which I think is, is one of the most interesting things I've found so far. I should have put this as a disclaimer beforehand, uh, and I hope that those of you who would know a lot more of this than probably I would uh, will forgive my pronunciations. In particularly with the mythology, the pronunciations are going to be a bit of an issue. I, I, am, I am trying my best. I'm not a native Irish speaker. I am trying uh, to overcome that. I'm trying to learn uh, more and more Irish as we go on. For the most part, I know there's probably not an agreed pronunciation on a lot of the names, but I've tried looking up phonetics and videos of hearing other people talk about these, and I think for the most part I am okay, I certainly hope. There are some, there are so many names though, and one's in there that I'm just like, 
oh, just it's just all the vowels. There's just so many vowels in Irish names. Uh, but we shall, we shall soldier on. There's no creation myth in Irish mythology, by which I mean there is no, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. We talked a bit about Greek mythology and Norse mythology last week. And Greek mythology and Norse mythology have... They have two quite interesting things. Greek mythology has a very definite start point. It has, like, in the beginning, there was chaos, and from chaos came everything else. Like, boom, start. That's when the entire world started. And as such a detailed chronicling... Chronicling? That's probably not a word. As such a detailed chart of everything that went after. Norse mythology has the exact opposite, where it has a definite end point. It has Ragnarok, which... Many people will now know because of the third installment of the Thor film series. Like, that happened. That does happen at the end of Norse mythology. And e- everything just ends. And that's, and that's where they went. And that's why there's no more Norse gods. They're all just gone. Ragnarok. Irish mythology has neither. It has neither of those things. Which is kind of interesting in a way, like, because it almost bridges the gap between myth and science just a little bit just kind of that the earth this theory that the earth always was or that they didn't they didn't try and believe that that something did create the earth the earth did just come into existence and then people came into existence and then eventually some of these people were magical which like is really interesting obviously sparks the mind in terms of imagination and everything but before we talk about the two of the analysts talk a little bit about the fear bullocks it literally means men of bags. So bullock is is your stomach in Irish. Fear is men. Uh, so fear bullocks make sense. There's a couple of theories why they were called the men of bags. Uh, one theory seems to be that they travelled around an awful lot. So they did, in a previous form, the fear bullocks did inhabit Ireland. They're descendants of the Mwincher Nemid, or the Nemidians, uh, who previously inhabited Ireland. They were, I think they were before even the Fomorians, but these all died out or went and moved to the rest of mainland Europe. So Ireland was totally uninhabited for a while. That's at which point the Fear Bullocks came back and the Fomorians peaceably left. So there's this weird kind of travelling back and forth, a bit like Polynesian history, like uh, this idea of the wayfinders, that they just travelled island to island, these thousand thousands of little islands all around the Pacific Ocean and that was the thing that they just travelled back and forth you know and never permanently settling so there obviously was uh, somewhat of that in Europe as well where like no one wanted to settle in one place permanently um, I should also say that all of these are mythological when I'm comparing that to Polynesian history the Fairbullugs and Fomorians and all these all seem to be totally made up they probably existed in some form but just they weren't called these names so the two of the Danan, they came from the north. It's considered like Norway and stuff like that, other Scandinavian countries, which again, like I said, is is interesting because the Vikings would become so associated with Ireland when they landed in 841, the ninth century. That's, uh, that's one Viking number I do know. That's literally when they arrived in Dublin. So that's a real interesting comparison to me that there is this weird association, indirect association between Irish mythology and Norse mythology. Some say that the, the two of the Danann came in through a mist and some say they came from a land. So they might have come from a nether region or a very specific place north of Ireland somewhere. And there was these four cities, Gorius, Morius, Phalius and 
I forget the name of the fourth one. I had it down there as well. Uh, and from each, they brought these four treasures. I think it's really cool that they had that the things that they valued, that they value, valued the plough, the sun, and the hazel tree. Because especially since they landed in the West, and there's just so much hazel everywhere, and just in general, people just seem to be obsessed with hazel in Ireland since. The hazel nut is what the salmon of knowledge would eat that would then be eaten by Phil McCool and make him a real smart boy. And what's interesting more about the Tua de Danon is that while they're immortal, they're not invincible. They very much, they live for hundreds of years and they pop up again. Like, like I said, they fall from power, but they stick around. In particularly, the Morrigan sticks around. And we'll kind of talk, not next week, the week after, we'll get on to Lou. And Lou is one of my favourite characters in all of Irish myth. You'll see, very soon see why he was very much, he was the cool guy. And he is considered a, fa- a father to Cúchulainn. Cúchulainn is supposed to be a descendant of Lú. And Cúchulainn has Lú's sword, Fragorach, the answerer. So things really kick off with Lú, uh, which we'll get to in a couple of weeks now when we return. But one thing I did want to talk about this, this episode is a woman named Lady Gregory. So Augusta, the Lady Gregory. She was kind of my window... She has been the window into Irish myth for over 100 years now. It certainly was my first intro into it. Because when I was looking, when I was starting to research this podcast, and I was, I was looking for a one-stop shop, basically. I wanted, I wanted a big compendium. I just wanted all of us in one thing. And I, ca- I found it in two books, and companion books that I talked about before, uh, of fairy, fairy Tales of Ireland by W.B. Yeats and then The Complete Irish Mythology by Lady Gregory. And they're two companion books. And so each writes the foreword for the other. And she was, Lady Gregory was just a huge, huge part of the Gaelic revival and did huge things for folklore in Ireland. Yeats is obviously one of the greatest and most famous poets in the world. And he was hugely into the folklore himself, but he was all through Lady Gregory. He never would have really got into folklore in the same way was he not introduced to Lady Gregory. So I wanted to talk a little bit about her today. So she was born in Galway in 1852. She was very much born into the upper class, which especially at that time traditionally associated with British ruling. But she very, Augusta very quickly rejected that and leaned heavily more towards Irish. Uh, She had a nanny named Mary Sheridan when she was young who introduced her to the Irish language and to folklore and everything. And that was where it it began to foster in her uh, her love of it. She married Sir Walter Henry Gregory in uh, Cool Park near Gert. Has to be one of the most Irish-sounding names ever, Gert who was 35 years older than her. And so he he died when she was only 42. They only had one son together who would uh, die in World War One. It's actually where Yeats wrote the poem, An Irish Airman Foresees His Death, if any of you are familiar with that. But she was, uh, she was a diddle all throughout the marriage. She had several affairs and everything. But in 1893... Lady Gregory had a trip to Inishir on the Aran Islands, and this is really what sparked the interest in the language and the stories in her adult life. Uh, so in 1902 and 1904, she published two books, which would eventually become the complete Irish mythology. So she published 
Kukulan of Merhivna and Gods and Fighting Men. And these two books would be put together later to become the complete Irish mythology. Yeats would call the Gods and Fighting Men book the greatest book to come out of Ireland in his time. Um, so Lady Gregory died, she died at the age of 80, and her her house in Cool, in cool Park, uh, outside Gert, that was destroyed in the early 40s. But there is, this house that she had, this was famous for loads of parties and everything, and where all these meetings, the Gaelic revival and all were happened. But there is still a tree on the grounds in Cool Park that has the initials of Singh Yates, Jack Yates, Yates' brother, a great artist, Sean O'Casey, uh, George Bernard Shaw, a good few others. Like this is, You can still find this. Uh, in fact, Shaw said of her that she was the greatest living Irish woman. So she was remarkably influential in her time. And Thomas Kinsella, uh, this is later now, this is going to I think it's the late, late 60s, early 70s. I could be wrong. I think it's, I think it's early 70s. But Thomas Kinsella, he's the name that's known because he's who adapted the Tawn and this kind of the Ulster cycle and the story of Cucullin in the version that we know today. The most famous version of of the Cucullin myth is is that recent. And that's that's the first version that was returned to its former glory. But before that, Lady Gregory's version of, of the Cucullin myth was gospel basically and it was very much like Kinsella has said of it that he was it was very much his his biggest influence and everything when he was adapting it it is problematic because I suppose understandably Lady Gregory wanted to start she wanted to create a, a national myth which Cucullin very much is it is if if you could say that Ireland had one myth at all it would probably be the myth of Cucullin and the the battle for the bull of Cooley and Queen Maeve but because she wanted to make it a national myth, she made it quite clean and quite tame, which becomes problematic for a few different reasons. Because it is absolute blood, guts and sheer filth. And that is what is so, so incredible about the town, and that Kinsella was able to return it to this glory. Lady Gregory, understandably, wanted to create a version that we could tell to children which is noble enough, but it's great that it exists in its proper form now. We still teach it to children, obviously, and uh, we spare it. It's able to be spared of its gruesome details, although as far as I'm concerned, the only version that it should be enjoyed in is the horrendous and gruesome version. To summarise, basically, the reason probably that Lady Gregory is not more remembered publicly in terms of like why she's not on the the literary tea towel, as it's called, with all the other boys, I suppose it's because her actual works themselves, that they've survived less. But she was so, so massively influential on every, on nearly every single writer and playwright and poet of the early years of the 20th century, just before just as Irish writing was starting to explode and just before Joyce was really getting going. Joyce can kind of can be considered the anti-Yates and the anti-Lady Gregory. Joyce was not a fan of the Gaelic revival at all. As far as he was concerned, there was no pride to be taken in being Irish. Ireland was just the place where he happened to be born. And why he wrote so much about it, particularly obviously about Dublin, 
is because it was the city he was born in. So it was the most, it was the city that he would have the most chance of portraying authentically. Ulysses is such a detailed description of Dublin that Joyce himself said, if the city of Dublin was destroyed tomorrow, you could rebuild it from the pages of my book. I'm trying to, I'm trying to be relatively clean on this, but uh, Joyce was a very arrogant man and built himself up. He was very much a, a Kanye West of his, ty- of his day in terms of he really built up the cult of himself, but also like Kanye, he delivered, he delivered on everything that he said. I'm not for a second comparing um, Kanye West's creative output to that of Joyce, but just it was a very much, he definitely bigged himself up so much, but then did deliver some of the greatest prose that has ever written, been written and probably ever will be written. I definitely get Joyce's point. I, I like I like the humanistic approach that Joyce took as that like we're all people, we're not we're not Irish, we're not English, we're not American, we're just all human beings and there's definitely something really cool to be taken from that. But I also like this idea of that these are our stories, the myths and the legends and all, they are our stories. And like I said in the introduction last week, they're known less. And if the Greek myths and the Norse myths were worldwide, if they're so popular, um, then certainly even in Ireland, why don't we know more of our own myths? Um, so that's kind of my endeavour with this podcast. I think that fairly wraps it up. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Next week, we're going to take another folktale um, I'm looking forward to that now. That's It's one of my favourites that I've discovered next week's, and I'll tell you all about it then. And I hope you've enjoyed listening to us. I think we're going to find our feet as we go on more and more. Um, it should be hopefully become clearer, and once we figure out what works and what doesn't work, and I value, of course, your feedback, the listener. I want us to have a socialist model and for us to shape this podcast together to make it as fun and entertaining as it possibly can be. If you want to contact me, you can contact me on Twitter uh, at Olahan Solo, all one word, O-L-O-H-A-N-S-O-L-O, or on Instagram at Olahan Solo as well. I'll wrap it up there. So thanks very much for listening. I'll talk to you next week on Fireside. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.